Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Miriam Namazi. Miriam is an Iranian-born writer and activist living in the UK. She's the spokesperson of One Law for All and the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain. She's co-authored many books, including Sharia Law in Britain, A Threat to One Law for All, and Equal Rights, Enemies Not Allies, The Far Right, and The Political and Legal Status of Apostates in Islam. This episode is all about the current uprising in Iran. And because it's a time-sensitive episode, I'm releasing it all at once to both subscribers and the public. Miriam and I talk about the death of Masa Amini in police custody and the protests that her death have caused all over Iran. We talk about the Iranian morality police and the laws and customs governing how Iranian women have to dress and behave. We talk about the strange alliance of conservative Islam and Western intersectional feminism. We talk about the legacy of the Iranian revolution of 1979, which turned Iran into an Islamic state. We talk about the robust black market for Western and secular content in Iran. We talk about what we in the West can do to support Iranian women and protesters, and much more. So without further ado, Miriam Namazi. Okay, Miriam Namazi, thanks so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about the Iranian protest today. But before we get to that, I'd like you to just give a little summary of who you are. I imagine probably a good deal of my audience has, has heard of you. But um, if you could just give a little biography of how you came to care deeply about the, the issues we're going to talk about today. Well, I'm uh, Iranian born and um, I had to leave Iran in 1980 with my family after the establishment of an Islamic regime there. And therefore, a lot of my work and activism has been around refugee rights, because, of course, many of my family and friends have become refugees. And also around the issue of obviously human rights, women's rights, the demand for secular societies where religion is separate from the state and against uh, Islamic regime of Iran and Sharia laws, which are medieval and brutal. So I've done work in various areas. More recently, I've uh, run the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain, which defends the right to apostasy and blasphemy and to leave Islam and religion without fear. And also the One Law for All campaign, which is a campaign against Sharia courts in Britain. And that's demanding one law for all, equal rights for all. And of course, Iran is even though I've left Iran for many years, it's still very much close to my heart. And I think that it's a hugely important country. What happens there has effects uh, throughout the world. And that's why I think a lot of the, this work for refugee rights, for women's rights, for secularism, against religious rules, they're all very linked. So can you give, um, give my audience a brief reminder about the, some of the history here, the significance of the Iranian revolution and how that changed the country with respect to Islam? Well, I think uh, Islam has always had a role to play in Iran, unfortunately, a negative role in recent history. Even during the Shah's uh, dictatorship, 
Islam did play a role in that state. But of course, you know, it's incomparable to what happens when you live. It's the difference between a dictatorship and a theocracy, which is complete totalitarianism. And so I think one of the things I think is important to know is that the Iranian revolution was not an Islamic revolution. This is something that's often, this is the way it's often portrayed, but that's not the case. It was a revolution for freedom, for equality, and also against dictatorship. But unfortunately, the Islamic movement came and took this revolution over, really established itself by slaughtering an entire generation. And I do want to add here that during that time, we're talking about a time during the Cold War uh, between the US and the Soviet Union of the time. And US foreign policy, part of it was to create a green belt or an Islamic belt around the Soviet Union at the time. And that's why at that time, for example, they trained and supported the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, Islamist organizations, and also met in Guadeloupe to decide that they preferred an Islamic regime there, given the politics at the time, the Cold War politics at the time. So I think all of these forces came into play and we got stuck with a horrendous Islamic regime. And I think if you look at photos of Iran, of Afghanistan, of Iraq 40 plus years ago, you see very different countries. And I think what's great about the protests taking place in Iran today is you're seeing that image, a different image, a modern, a secular, a woman-friendly image, you know, that's very different from the sort of brutal, violent, uh, misogynist Islamic movement that we're so used to seeing in our lives and on our television screens um, every day. So let's jump to the present now. Who is Masa Amini and why has her death in police custody sparked such outrage? Masa Amini is a, was a 22-year-old woman. She was visiting from Iranian Kurdistan. She was visiting with her brother. She came to Tehran. And when she was there, she was arrested by the guidance patrol, the morality police, as they're called. And basically, this is something that happens to millions of women every year. There's these morality police that roam the streets hunting for women, basically. As you know, compulsory veiling is the law in Iran. So mostly even Massa was veiled. The problem, though, was that she wasn't properly veiled, according to them. So she might have strands of hair outside of her veil or her veil was too far back. So they arrested her, even though, and, you know, there's her brother was begging them, don't take her. We're guests here. We're visitors here. We don't live in Tehran. And in a couple of hours, you know, she was taken to the hospital and she was brain dead upon arriving in the hospital. And they had beaten her so brutally. They had killed her. They basically murdered her. And they did try to say that, you know, she must have had heart problems. She collapsed, but she was a perfectly healthy woman. And doctors at Castroite Hospital where they brought her did say that she was brain dead upon arrival. There was blood, dried blood in her ear, which shows that her head was battered. Um, and also there are eyewitnesses that said she was brutalized. And of course, this is not the, a rare case. We've seen this happen many times in Iran where women, if you've seen footage, I'm sure, of women being arrested by the morality police, they're dragged, they're kicked, they're beaten. And according to the law, any woman who's not properly veiled it's punishable by fines, it's punishable by imprisonment and serious and severe violence. And so I think the thing with Mahsa Amini's case is that it was so naked, you know, this brutality against a woman who was there visiting Tehran, uh, being attacked in this senseless way, a healthy young woman with all her life ahead of her and being murdered effectively because of a few strands of hair. And I think that's what's really outraged people. But I also want to add that, you know, this is not the first case and it's the, I guess, the straw that's broken the camel's back. 
because it's just built up and built up and built up. And there have been so many various protests that have been suppressed and suppressed and suppressed. And it's reached a point where uh, women are just saying no more. And the great thing is that men are standing with women. So the main slogans of these protests are, we don't want an Islamic government. We don't want a misogynist regime. And the main slogan is women, life, freedom. I mean, I think that image, that slogan, that the fact that this happened to Massa, where it's so clear cut, no Islamic propaganda from the side of regime can hide what's happened. All of this has meant that it's just captured people's hopes and dreams and for a better and different life. And also, I think the bravery of the women and men that are standing up to the government's forces, I think courage really gives people hope and makes them think that change is possible. And I think that's why it's been tragic for all of those who've lost their loved ones, but also so hopeful that maybe this can be the beginning of the end of this regime. So there are lots of people in the world some conservative Muslims, others, uh, Western feminists that feel that sincerely feel the hijab is really a beautiful symbol of religious morality and, and a positive force in society and that support, if not the compulsory wearing of it, then wearing it as a choice. And so I'm curious, what would you say to uh, persuade someone who believes that sincerely? Well, I mean, I think, look, uh, obviously it's a given that if you're fighting for the right to be unveiled, there is also this right, but I put it in quotes, to be veiled, because obviously the point is that women should be able to wear whatever they want. But I think to portray the veil as a right and a choice is misleading at best, because the fact of the matter is that what is the veil for? What does it represent? Why do women have to wear the veil? Why don't men wear blinders, for example, or um, you know, cover their eyes if they cannot manage to walk down the street without seeing a woman's hair? And the reason women have to be veiled is because they are seen to be the source of fitna and chaos in society, and they have to be veiled in order to keep societal harmony, basically. And so it's this view that women's bodies and their hair is so perverse verse, it's so damaging that if it's seen in public, it will cause chaos in society. As one so-called Islamic scholar said, you know, if in a debate with me, if we don't impose compulsory veiling, there'll be adultery, then we'll have to stone people to death. So isn't it better that we impose the veil? I mean, these sort of bogus, misogynist, inhuman arguments, you know. And again, as I said, of course, if an adult woman chooses to wear the veil, she has that right to do so. But my question is, how many women really have a choice that's the first question. Because even if you're not living in an Islamic state where the veil is compulsory, if you're living in Britain, the pressure to conform, and often that pressure is very clearly followed with threats and intimidation, if not violence, at least the very clear threat of violence, if you don't conform. And I think when you are living in an age where the religious right is in power, when the Islamists are in power, not just in Islamic states, but including in Western countries, like the Islamists have power in the UK. So in so-called Muslim communities, if a woman doesn't want to be veiled, you know, there is, she will be ostracized, she will be punished. And we have a lot of members from in the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain who come to our meetings and then go home where they're veiled before they go home, who still go to the mosque. Because of this pressure, the risk of being ostracized, the risk of things, even worse things happening to you. So I think there can't really be a choice for women when it is followed by threats and intimidation. And also, if 
veiling is a choice, but the right to unveil is not a choice, then that's not really a choice because the right to veil has to come with a corresponding right to unveil, to refuse the veil, to criticize the veil. Otherwise, it's not really a right and a choice. It's an imposition by a religious right movement. That's really what it is. And of course, look, you're always going to find people who will support FGM, will support the veil, will support foot binding, will support the practice of sati, where women throw themselves on the pyres of burning pyres of their husbands in Hinduism. There will always be people who support that. The point, though, is that even if everybody supports that, is something right or is it wrong? The veil is fundamentally a tool to manage and control women. I think we have to be able to say that. That doesn't mean we have to forcibly remove the veil from women's heads. That doesn't mean that we can't respect women who are veiled. We might not respect the veil, but we have to be able to respect women who are veiled. But also that we have to understand that, look, it's a joke to say it's a right and a choice when women are being killed for the very act of not just unveiling, but because they are improperly veiled, you know. And so I think there is a lot of bogus conversation around this issue that doesn't go to the crux of the matter, which is that like FGM, like female genital mutilation, the veil is there to control women, to control their bodies and to control their sexuality. And I do want to add that while I think adult women have the so-called right to wear a veil. When it comes to children, it is a form of child abuse, in my opinion. And the reason girls are veiled from such a young age, it's compulsory in Iran from, you know, puberty, from when you start going to school. You see little children wearing the veils here in Europe. It's because if they let girls go without veils and let them reach an age where they would choose it, no one would choose it. And that's the reality of it. Mm. To what extent do the people of Iran want a fully secular government? And is that answer different for the older and younger generations? I think, you know, obviously every society has differences of opinion. Not everybody in the United States agrees on every issue from secularism to the right to abortion to on the issue of systematic racism, whatever. There are differences of opinion. And I think with regards secularism as well in Iran, obviously people who are in support of the Islamic regime. But I think that a vast majority are not in support of an Islamic regime. And if you look at the fact that 70 percent of the population are under the age of 30 and very much everything that they do in their lives is in direct contradiction to Islamic rules. So even if you're not a political person, even if you're not an atheist, even though I do think there is a tsunami of atheism in Iran, even if you're not, uh, the very fact that you can't be with the person you love, you can't dress the way you want, you can't listen to music, your voice is forbidden, you can't go into certain fields of study because you're a woman, you can't be a judge because you're deemed to be too emotional, you can't travel around Iran or outside the country without the permission of your male guardian. You can't work unless your male guardian gives you permission. All of these things mean that everything you do in your life is in direct contradiction with the government, if you are a lesbian, if you are a free thinker. And so I think through not theoretical arguments, but through the practical life experience of over 40 plus years, uh, it has become very clear, I think, to people, to a majority of people, that secularism is a minimum precondition, the separation of religion from the state. And I actually believe that no one wants secularism more than those who live in theocracies because they understand it with their very being, you know, because for people in Iran, secularism is a matter of life and death. And I think it's not just slogans, sloganeering, is if you look at the 
slogans and coming out of this wonderful modern secular uh, protest movement in Iran, the slogans are secular slogans. They are modern slogans. They are slogans that demand the liberation of women and men. And so I think it's very clear that they do. And again, if you look at comments by the Islamic regime, you know, they comment about how they've lost Iranians. There's too much. um, There are too many who are atheists. There are too many who are secular. They're trying to always bring in new policies to try to quell that. So I think it's something that they take very seriously because they see it across the country. But also on the generational issue, I think it is something that is not just a demand of the young. Because if you look at the Iranian revolution, that was in a way a revolution that was stopped without reaching fruition. And it politicized Iranian society. And that politicization has continued over the past 40 decades. So as an example, the French Revolution, its effects are still felt in France and in the demand for laicite or the separation of religion from the state. And I think it's the same with Iran. So it is generations of people who've demanded this. But of course, every generation has become more radical, more progressive, more secular, more women's rights focused, and to the point where now we see slogans that say women, life, freedom. I recently rewatched the movie Argo from maybe from around 10 years ago, which was a, a retelling of the hostage crisis during the Iranian revolution. And in reading about the movie after I watched it, I discovered that it was apparently a big hit in Iran on the black market of bootleg DVDs and so forth, uh, partly because of it jibed well with the current anti-government sentiment. And uh, you know that was interesting to me because it, it suggested that Iran has a a very vibrant black market of art and products from the rest of the world and and surely from Iran itself that the government is unable to crack down on. In, in other words, it's not like it's not like anything like in North Korea that seems to truly have tight control over what people do with their time, but that there is just a, a vibrant world that the government is unable to control where ideas are flourishing. Is do you share that? Mm-hmm. Impression. Yeah, I'm, I mean, definitely there is that. And also, I think uh, in the age of Internet and social media, the access to information is very, very difficult to control. And of course, uh, the government does try to restrict access to the Internet. Uh, but there are very many ways people try to bypass that the controls and to have access. And I think, um, you know, in the age of social media, it is hugely difficult to keep a population completely uninformed. And of course, satellite dishes, again, a large number of people have satellite dishes where they watch news not made in Iran, where they watch films not made in Iran. And so, you know, you've got this thing where the government comes and takes people's satellite dishes, brings tanks in the street and rolls over them. And in 24 hours, the dishes are back up again, new dishes are back up again. And with social media too, it it has brought about a huge change in what information people can have access to. And I think that has been a huge help as well. And I think um, that's why there's so much effort on this, the part of the government to control social media, to control the internet, but it has proved impossible for them. So one of the things that I've understood from my reading of the news is that the attitude towards the West, towards America and Israel in particular, are one of the 
large polarized opinions between the protesters and the counter protesters. So I, I read in AP two days ago, there was a big counter protest that may or may not have been even organized by the government. I guess it seemed unclear to me, but they were chanting death to America, death to Israel alongside supportive comments uh, about Khomeini and, and the regime. So I'm, I'm curious, why is it that the attitude towards the West is tightly linked to these differing opinions about Islam and, and religion in general? I mean, I think, look, first of all, we have to understand that the protests in Iran have become huge widespread protests in over 80 cities. So the fact that, you know, there's most likely a government-sponsored protest that are bringing out the same line that women need to be failed, anti-Westernism, anti-Israeli government, and so on and so forth, is, you know, their attempts at trying to pull their forces together. For example, there was this, uh, there was in the news a day or two ago where the regime had said that they're bringing out their special elite women forces to take control of the streets. Look, the, this is propaganda. This is the regime's propaganda at a time when really it is unable to control the protests. I mean, if you, first of all, the protests have continued. Now I think it's day 11 of these protests. It's widespread. In some places, they've even taken over the city, like in Oshnavir. There's these constant battles going on between protesters and the police. And you've got women now walking unveiled down the street. You have women putting photographs of themselves, sitting at cafes, walking down the streets with their the clothes that they want to wear without any manto or covering and also with their hair showing. So this is in effect the beginning of an end of an Islamic regime, an Islamic regime that cannot keep the veil on the heads of women no longer can show that it's Islamic because the veil is the most visible form of its control, you know. And so um, I think with the going of that, the sort of anti-Westernism, anti-Semitism and all of that will go. But I do want to add, too, that, you know, as someone on the left, I do think that criticism of Western government policy is very needed and necessary. And nonetheless, I think that people in the West just like people in Iran, have much more common, it's our common humanity, than differences. And that in actuality, if we want to bring about change in Iran, we are going to need the support and solidarity of people everywhere, people in the West, people in the East, the North and the South. And also on the issue of Israel, I mean, 100% I agree with the right of these Israel to exist. I'm against Hamas and Hezbollah. And, you know, these organizations have also taken the Palestinian people hostage. But at the same time, I think criticism of Israeli government policy on what's happening in the Palestinian territories, the settlements, all of that is not anti-Semitism. It's important that we are able to criticize states and governments and policies. But at the same time, uh, for me, I think, you know, we're all one human humanity. We have much more in common than we don't. And I think we need to find that in order to work together, show solidarity with, with each other. Look, people in Iran need support and solidarity from across the world. And it, we're seeing a lot of it, but we need to see a lot more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Particularly from feminists and people who are on the left, progressives. I myself, I'm on the left. For too long, a section of the left, a section of feminists have supported the Islamist movement as the authentic voice of Muslims, so-called Muslim communities and societies. There is no Muslim community and society. Uh, not everyone is Muslim to begin with. And even if they are Muslims, they're not the Islamic fascists. It's the difference between being a Christian 
and being a member of uh, the Christian right that bombs abortion clinics. There is a difference. And it's, you know, I think it's important to understand the differences, to challenge the religious right, defend Muslims, non-Muslims, ex-Muslims, atheists around the issue of basic human rights, women's rights. So I was looking back at the 2019 protests in Iran, which were more massive than than I remembered. And many, many people were killed by the police. Uh, They were really, really just huge. And I was looking at some of the slogans that were uttered then. And one of them apparently or allegedly was, uh, oh, Shah of Iran, return to Iran, which uh, brought up the question for me, is it that protesters clearly want a secular government, but do they want a secular monarchy or do they want a secular democracy? Again, look, I'm not a monarchist. I'm against the monarchy. So again, you know, I can only say that, look, of course, there are people who will support the monarchy and want the monarchy back in Iran. I think uh, the problem with the world in general and also Iran is that there is a historical amnesia. You know, the whole reason why there was a revolution in the first place was because of the Shah's dictatorship. Um, The fact that a lot of people killed by the Islamic regime were on the list of the Shah's Savak or, you know, secret police. And there were many political prisoners during that time. There was a lack of freedom of expression and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, I'm hoping that, and of course, this is the choice of people, you know, if we can get rid of the Islamic regime of Iran, and we have a society where people, all political parties from left to right, monarchists and those who are Republicans, secularists and those who want socialism, for example, if it's possible to have a freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of organization without threats, without intimidations, Let people come and bring their platforms and their perspectives and let people decide without foreign intervention, without threats and violence. It is possible. I have a lot of faith in people to choose what's best. And, you know, sometimes you don't get what you want. That's part of living in a democratic society. But there has to be freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of political parties in order for people to be able to make a viable choice. So I think, yes, of course, monarchy is has a long history in Iran, the monarchy. And given the fact that it's so medieval and barbaric and brutal, the Islamic regime, that people look back to the golden age of the monarchy. In a way, it reminds me of groups like even the Islamists look back to the age of the Khalifa. I think we can't keep looking back. We need to look forward. And today in the 21st century, forward, I think, is a state that's democratic, is a state that's secular, is a state that respects fully freedom of conscience, expression, and rights, including the rights of women, LGBT minorities. Do you think that the regime could maintain power, but loosen laws around the veil or effectively stop enforcing them? Or do you think the only way that the veiling mandate will change is if the regime falls? The the veiling mandate has already fallen. It's fallen because women are refusing to comply. And that's the problem for the regime. I think it's impossible for the regime to reform its laws and stay in power. It's like saying the racial apartheid regime of South Africa, could it stay 
if whites and blacks were no longer segregated. It's impossible. That's no longer an apartheid regime, a regime that's based on racial segregation. If the races are segregating, that's the end of racial apartheid. It's the same in Iran. This is a, a, a regime of sex apartheid, the segregation of the sexes. The veil is one form of it, but there is sex segregation in the sense that uh, women have to sit in the back of the bus, for example, in Iran. It's like uh, Rosa Parks refusing to sit in the back of the bus. You know, women are refusing to sit in the back of the bus. Women have to enter via separate government doors to enter government offices. There's a curtain in the Caspian Sea that separates men from women. We're talking about a regime that segregates the sexes and the veil is its most visible form of segregation. Women have to wear that wall of segregation on their very backs. And when women refuse to wear it, when the sexes are mixing at protests, that's the end of the Islamic regime of Iran. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow or when no struggle is guaranteed, unfortunately. I wish it would be so easy. Nothing is guaranteed. It depends on how much support and solidarity the people in Iran get, how much Western governments stop supporting and legitimizing the Islamic regime of Iran, whether they'll close down the embassies, expel their ambassadors. We need that to happen. We need people in the West to demand that they end relations with the Islamic regime in the same way that huge solidarity movements across the world demanded an end of relations with the apartheid regime of South Africa. So all of that will decide, determine whether people in Iran will win. But I think we have now reached a point where it is the beginning of the end for them. If women do not comply, if people do not listen to their rules, they are no longer able to impose it. It's their end. How long it takes, it depends on how we work from now on. My name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman, a platform where I have honest, unfiltered conversations with the world's brightest minds on the most pressing issues of our time. The ability to think freely is what moves society forward. That's why for all fans of the show, I've created the Unfiltered Community. The Unfiltered Community is a space for open, honest conversations about difficult social and political issues. In the Unfiltered Community, you'll also gain access to unaired episodes of Conversations with Coleman, exclusive Q&As with me, and other bonus content. Join me and thousands of others as we challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Let's change the world one conversation at a time. Join the community today at www.colemanhughes.org slash unfiltered. Okay, my final question for you, Miriam. How do you recommend that people from the West who feel sympathy with the protesters help, if at all? Do you know any good channels or organizations that are the ones to support financially or otherwise if people want to help? I think what we need right now is uh, we need large mobilization in the West to support the people's movement in, the, in Iran. So, for example, in London, every day at five o'clock, we go to Trafalgar Square in London and uh, raise our voices in support of the protests in Iran. On October 1st, on Saturday, there is a global day of action where there are going to be protests in cities across the globe. So I would encourage all those who want to support this movement to look out for protests that are taking place in their cities and to join them. It makes a huge difference. We've had so many non-Iranians join the protests. It gives encouragement. It gives uh, courage to those in Iran as well to see this mass mobilization. The other thing I think is to put pressure on governments to stop legitimizing, recognizing 
this government. The embassies should be shut down. We need citizens in their own countries to demand an end to this. You know, in New York, for example, while people were being killed on the streets just a few days ago, you had Ibrahim Raisi, who's the president of Iran, coming to the United States, being given a visa to enter the United States and being able to address the the UN General Assembly. He is a criminal, not only because he is directly responsible for the murder of Masa Amini, but he is someone who was on the death commission in Iran during the 80s that is responsible for the execution of thousands of political prisoners at the time. He is wanted for crimes against humanity. So we need that pressure also on governments. Financially, I think, support the protests. Right now, we need microphones. We need not not to support any specific political organization, I think, but to support protesters to come with microphones, uh, to come with placards, to help bring things, water to for the protesters, for example, just anything that could help support those who are protesting and to constantly um, publicize what's happening in Iran on social media, among your friends, your family, encourage them to get involved. You know, for me, I think what I would tell everyone who's listening is that, look, this is not just a fight for the people of Iran, for freedom of women and men in Iran. If you all remember, if you are old enough to remember or even are not old enough to remember, but will have will know your, you know, what happened historically just over 40 years ago, an Islamic regime took power in Iran. And that has had a domino effect across the Middle East and North Africa, Afghanistan, Iraq, Sudan, all of these countries, they were not what they are today. It is the result of that domino effect of the rise of the Islamist movement across the Middle East and North Africa, and also its effects we see in the West. It has helped a corresponding rise of the Christian right, for example, in the US and in Europe. So what I want to say to you is that if we can support a revolution in Iran that is a women's revolution, a slogan that is women, life, freedom, it will also have effects across the world. It will also act as a domino effect to push back the Islamists and the religious right in the Middle East, in North Africa, and also across the globe. So it is a universal fight. It is a universal struggle. And it is a fight that if we don't fight it today, we will be dealing with this monster for many decades to come. We need to deal with it and end this movement once and for all. It can begin in Iran as it, the opposition to it and the end of it can begin in Iran in the same way that it started to rise in Iran. Well, thank you, Maryam. This has been very informative and I think people will get a lot of value from this. And um, I I support what you're doing. I admire you a great deal and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate getting our voices out at this time. Keep strong. If you appreciate the work I do, you can support me by subscribing directly to my website, colemanhughes.org, and sharing this episode with friends and family. As always, thank you for your support.